All right. David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson was a modest uh, preacher from the farmlands of Pennsylvania. And his life changed one day when he saw a black and white image, a picture in Life magazine. And uh, it was a, a picture of the faces of uh, seven gang members uh, from New York City. And he saw the look on their faces. He saw the, really the, the, the effects of a life of adversity and a life of trial and difficulty. And he had such great compassion. His heart was moved for these young people trapped in gang life and the violence that that represented. And so this was his calling. This was his, his moment where he began to feel God calling him to reach these troubled these troubled youths, as some might say. Uh, this makes me sound like I'm really old, saying troubled youths. But he felt a divine obligation that transcended all the other comforts in his life, all the things in his life that he cared about. Suddenly, this was the greatest thing. And this calling would require, to reach these gangs, this calling would require a bigger sacrifice than he had ever made before leaving behind the comfort and the, familiar, the familiarity, that's a hard word for me to say, of, uh, of his, his home, his, his family, his friends, his congregation, the predictability of rural life that he was used to. This pathway would expose him to actually a lot of ridicule. He'd be ridiculed for going down this pathway, but also it would prove to be extremely dangerous. But David Wilkerson was resolute. He was prepared to do whatever it took to follow God's call and to build God's kingdom. Finding himself on the streets of New York City was a jolt to his senses. He was in an unfamiliar environment and he was almost like a lone voice amongst these gang members with a message that seemed completely foreign to everyone he talked to in every environment, every place that he went. Trying to reach these gangs was like trying to penetrate an infortable, an infortable, an impenetrable fortress. I'm making up words. I like to do that. Trying to, to, to penetrate a, a fortress that uh, was impenetrable. And uh, David Wilkerson, after months and months of pouring his heart out, trying to reach these gangs, he was doubting, struggling. He had had threats against him, and he was beat down and worn out. But even though things looked impossible, even though he was thinking, dreaming about his former life and how much better that seemed, he still persisted on, convinced of the call that God had given him. It got to the end of the, that year, and he found himself on a corner, a frigid corner, a cold environment, temperature-wise, but also spiritually, where he was alone and he felt destitute. The city continued on around him indifferently. And he began to question his call. Would God honor his great sacrifice? Would this sacrifice be worth it? His pleas and his prayers seemed to be going unheard and unnoticed. And when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse... One of the most notorious gangs at the time, the Mau Mau's, the leader of that gang, Nicky Cruz, with some real threat 
lurking behind this showed up at one of David Wilkerson's meetings. I'm going to pause the story right there and get back to it at the end of the sermon, but it highlights to us, it illustrates to us what we're going to be looking at in our passage today. We're continuing in our The Real Jesus teaching series and uh, an alternative sermon title uh, series we could have given to this in line with David Wilkerson's story could have been uh, Jesus the OG or uh, OG Jesus could be another option. If you don't know what OG means, look it up. Um, we're, going to be in the, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. We're doing this journey looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, we have Bibles in our pews. If you don't have a Bible, use it today. Take it home with you. If you don't have a Bible at home, it will come up on the screen uh, as well. What we have to do, what we must do, is look at the Jesus of Scripture. That's the Jesus that can transform our hearts that can satisfy every desire that we have and can set us free from evil. Let's pray, and then we're going to read here. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 20. Jesus, we pray that you would illuminate your word to us today. Give us a vision for the life that you want us to live, the life that you came to purchase for us, called us into your purposes, Lord. And so I pray, would you set us free, Lord, to serve you? Would you set us free to be fulfilling your purposes. Lord, help us, help us to respond to your call. Help us to hear your call and help us have faith to respond to your call. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately... Thank you, Mark. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is... God's word. We see here from our last message, Jesus is now emerging from the wilderness. Jesus had had 40 days praying and fasting, being tested, going through a trial in the wilderness and being, being tempted uh, by evil and overcoming that. And so we see, we looked at this last time, but we see the, the private victory that Jesus had uh, to resist temptation, to resist evil, to overcome satanic powers. He uh, is now uh, being thrust into his public ministry, having that private victory. And that applies to all of us, having that private victory. We, we then, uh, that qualifies us in one sense to have a greater public victory. Uh, what you do behind closed doors really qualifies you for what you do uh, out in the open. And so we see Jesus coming out of the wilderness and going straight into public life and public ministry. We also learn here right away that John the baptizer has been arrested. John 
We looked at him in previous weeks, very significant figure. He had been very critical of one of the politicians of his day, a guy called Herod. And Herod had an immoral marriage. And John, the baptizer, was calling him out on this immoral marriage. Now, proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the the works of God and the wonders of God and telling people to follow God, uh, yes, it does include telling people about God's love and about God's grace. Absolutely. That's the core of it. That's, you can't, if you don't do that, then you're not really doing it. So yes, of course, we declare that. But also, the gospel is about being saved from evil, saved from sin. And so, not everyone like everyone loves to hear a message, message of love. Everyone wants to be loved and needs to be loved. And needs to, we all need to receive love. We, it's, a, it's a powerful message, isn't it? God loves you. It's a very powerful message. We don't always like the message, you're living in sin, you're doing something wrong, and you need to stop it. As the people, you know, the people who especially don't like that is the powerful. People in, especially people with political power. So Herod didn't like his marriage being criticized even though it was immoral, and so he has John arrested. We have to understand that in the advancement of the gospel, in the declaration of the gospel, that it's, it's not always easy or nice or pleasant, but it's actually in the midst of adversity. As we declare the love of God and the grace of God, that means we're highlighting the evil in the world and the evil in people's hearts. And if people are in the place to repent, they receive it, If they're not, they really hate it. They really hate it. This would have been a real shock to people. John being arrested would have been a real shock because the people view John as an Old Testament prophet, somebody like Elijah. They hadn't had a prophet in like 400 years, so they're really, really interested and hungry for a prophet. And now John is kind of defeated, it seems. He's now locked up and he's been put away. This would have been devastating to the people. This is actually John's capture and arrest and imprisonment is a foreshadowing that Jesus is going to be arrested and captured as well. Because Jesus, what does he continue to do? He continues the same message as John. John is preaching a message of repentance. And what does it tell us in the verses we just read? Jesus carries on that same message. He's declaring, repent and believe. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from it. It's destroying you. It's killing you. It's harming you. It's harming the world around you. Turn from it and believe. And this is a bit of a foreshadowing. And what we see here is we see the forces in the world conspiring with the forces of darkness, whether they know it or not, but those two forces working together to undermine the work of God and and the, the people of God who are declaring the message of God. And what's ironic is the very things they're trying to do to shut down the message and to, to, to inhibit the, the spread of the gospel and to inhibit people turning from their sin, the very things they're trying to do to stop it, they don't know they're actually achieving the very perfect means that God has established to bring about redemption. They don't understand that in coming against John and coming against Jesus ultimately, they're going to bring about the redemption of the world. They can't see that. And this is such an important message and note for us to think for us to understand and to know is that when things look bad, when evil triumphs, 
when it looks like the kingdom of darkness gets some territory, when it looks like, oh my gosh, things are going in the wrong direction. Well, we thought John was supposed to be the big guy who got the breakthrough and the people were going to him for baptism and this is amazing. And now he's in prison. What the heck's going on? Above all of it, God, the master planner, the one with all the power and control, he's working all of his purposes out. In the midst of every setback, even if you cannot imagine one way it could work out better, that's what, you're, that's when you're, that's what faith is called. You, you, you trust God is doing something that I cannot see. I, I just can't see it. Nobody could see this, how this is all going to work out. This is, this is, how, this is amazing how God does this in the darkest moments. So Jesus has come to shine this light, to preach this gospel. He's preaching, he's going around proclaiming the gospel. Don't miss this, Jesus, Jesus is a preacher. He was really good at it too. And he really liked it. Jesus really liked to preach. He's a really good preacher. He's like the Michael Jordan of preachers. I guess, wait, wait, it'd probably be better to say it the other way around, right? The Michael Jordan is the, yeah, okay. um, the Jesus of basketball. No, that doesn't work either. All right. That'll be what you remember from today. That's all right. I can go with that. Where did I get to? Where am I in my, in my sermon here? So uh, Jesus came to preach. Preaching is a really critical central part of Christian ministry and Christian faith. Never get tired of preaching. Now, listen, none of us should have to endure bad preaching, so I'm trying to do the best I can, all right? But... But we, we have to understand, we, we should never devalue preaching. We should never be like, well, I don't really need that. I, I'm getting bored of sermons or bored of... To be a disciple means we're students. That's what a disciple is. We're, we're, we're perpetual students. We're always in school. I'm sorry if you're somebody who hated school. I hated school, so I'm on the same page as you. I hated school. I'm not a good... I, I'm, I like to learn, but I'm not a good classroom learner. I'm just like a weird... I don't know what kind of learner I am, but I'm not a classroom learner. So, but we're perpetual students. We're always learning. So we should... You know, Jesus was, was the best preacher that ever lived. He's always preaching, declaring his amazing messages, teaching in parables, teaching other ways, amazing ministry. We have to value and we have to see the importance and the power of declaring the gospel, of preaching the gospel, that God uses preaching. God uses it. I mean, how many times has, has your life been changed by one, even just one comment in one sermon sometimes? Sometimes something dramatic changes. You just hear something in a way. The Holy Spirit uses something in a way. You, you, you just say, oh my gosh, I, I feel different about this thing now. I mean, it doesn't, it's not just sermons, right? Obviously, we study the Bible ourselves. There are times of prayer and worship. God works in all kinds of different ways, but man, preaching is so important. Never devalue it. Never ignore it. We've got to, we've got to seek out good, faithful, biblical preaching and be constantly fed by. That's what Jesus has come to do. So if you're a Christian, just get used to it. Yeah, I'm going to have a lot of preaching in my life. That's the way it's supposed to work. I need to hear, I need to be constantly hearing these words, getting this word into me. And so we, we learned about this, right, this gospel that's being preached. We learned about it on week one of our, our series, The Gospel Begins. We learned about the nature of the gospel, that it's gospel means it's, it's a joyful announcement. It's, it's not good advice. It's good news which means it's something that's already happened. It means Jesus has substituted himself in our place to take away our sin. That's the gospel. Amazing, amazing. It tells us here in these verses, though, that Jesus was preaching the gospel of God. Notice that, the gospel of God. And even Jesus himself says, 
um, in these passages we read that uh, behold, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The kingdom of God, the gospel of God, the kingdom of God. Think about it like this. If the gospel is Jesus dying for us in our place, but nobody knew at this point that Jesus had come to die, he hadn't died at this point, and Jesus doesn't tell them at this point that he's going to die, what gospel is he, is he proclaiming at this point? It's not about his sacrifice that he'll make for them. He's not telling them ahead of time, I'm going to die for your sins. That's not the message he's proclaiming at this moment. That is the most important message, and that message does come, and that's the message that we're to declare, to live by and to understand ourselves. But the gospel of God, at its most simplest form, can be boiled down to to this idea, and it was declared to the saints of old beforehand. God declared the gospel ahead of time. We're told that to different people. God declared the gospel ahead of time. And this is, at its most simplest form, is this. If you repent of your sin and trust in God, he'll forgive you. Now, the the clearest message of that is that, well, okay, it it happens through through the sacrifice of Jesus. That's how it happens, and and you do need to know that. But even before people knew that particular piece of it, the general idea of the gospel is God is gracious and will forgive you, of your, forgive you of your sin if you turn from it, if you repent of your sin. So this is the gospel that Jesus is declaring at this point, is turn from your sin. God will forgive you. God will set you free. That's the, the general sense of, of the gospel at this point. So this, this is a big part of Jesus' ministry, calling people to repentance. And obviously, this was a renewal that was happening within Israel. So they would have understand their history. They would have understood that they had drifted away from God. This would um, have been a message that would have really resonated with them. I do see sometimes in, on the streets of Chicago, in, written in chalk, repent and believe. I see that. I don't know if you see that walking around. I, is I the only one that sees this? People in my neighborhood are writing repent and believe on the floor in chalk. And I'm like, I know what that means. I don't know, if that, I don't know what that means to a lot of people around here. Um, it's the same thing, but... You have to understand your audience. You have to find a way to communicate what is repentance, what is turning away from evil. Find, find, find language that resonates with people today. Obviously, that language of that day would have resonated with those people. Other than teaching and preaching the gospel of God, return, you know, repent and, and turn to God, the next thing Jesus does is he wants to go and recruit some helpers. He needs some disciples. He's got, you know, Christianity is a team sport. So he's like, I need some, you know, it's, it's, it's not just me doing this thing. I've got to get some, some other guys because I'm not going to be, you know, I've got like three years uh, and I need to get, train up some other guys to carry this on. So he goes, goes and finds these fishermen. Now, he doesn't go to the elites of his day, the, the highly educated or the highly religious people or the wealthy people. He doesn't go to them to recruit he does reach those people. His message reaches those people. The only exception to this might be Matthew, the tax collector, who was a wealthy individual. But even then, he had to give up his wealthy life in order to follow Jesus. So it kind of doesn't count in that regard. But he starts with these, these fishermen. Doesn't go to, doesn't, yeah, he preaches in the synagogue, but he's not recruiting from the synagogue. He's not recruiting from that religious environment. Simil, in a similar way, he, he doesn't go to the poor and needy to recruit for the, the, these first disciples that, that he wants to be on his initial team. Um, he does care about the poor and the needy. He does reach the poor and the needy. He heals the sick. He feeds those who are hungry. He has great compassion on them. The gospel's for everybody, but 
for those that he wanted to be his apostles, for those that he wanted to, for those who were going to be responsible to start the greatest movement of human history, he he goes and finds some blue-collar, hard-working fishermen. The wisdom of Jesus. I mean, the Sea of Galilee, we're told he's on the Sea of Galilee, there were 16 ports along the Sea of Galilee. It was a hustling and bustling business area, a fishing industry built around it. Jesus goes into the workplace, into the blue-collar workplace, to get these initial disciples. The wisdom of Jesus is amazing. He's choosy and selective about who he wants to do what. Choosy and selective about it. Jesus is wanting people who are going to pioneer into new territory, who are going to end up having to give their own lives up for the sake of the gospel and be persecuted to death for their own beliefs. But he wanted people with, with grit, people who had built something, people who were part of a family business or they had an honest living. You know, these are kind of salt of the earth kind of people. And Jesus himself kind of came from this background, right? That he would, he would have been apprenticed and, and trained as a carpenter in a family business, working with his hands, an honest industry, an honest, honest work. And so Jesus finds these fishermen. During this day, fishermen, the way it worked was you, you had these big nets and they had weights around the edges of the nets, so very heavy. So you have to throw the net out. Uh, in, you, have to, you, know, you take your boat out a little ways into the Sea of Galilee. You throw the net out. It's weighted, so it's very heavy to do this. The net slowly sinks into the sea, obviously catching fish in it all the way to the bottom, and it's caught a bunch of fish. Then the fishermen have to swim down to the bottom. They have to gather all of the, the weights together, tie it, bind it together, and then they have to swim back up, dragging it all the way back up. This is very dangerous and extremely difficult to do. These are the kind of people that Jesus initially recruits to be ultimately to become his apostles. They weren't the most mature people. They were young, foolish. We see them arguing about who's the greatest. So they're a bit of an embarrassment. But Jesus wasn't embarrassed to have them as his followers. Well, maybe he was sometimes. Not enough to to not do it. But they were hardworking and they were loyal. They were extremely hardworking. They were loyal. They fed the nation. All the Pharisees and all the Sadducees, all of the religious people of the day, they ate the fish of the fishermen. Right? So everybody's depending. They're like, you know, everyone to, 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 you know, Keep living. To, to, better to go to the grocery store and get my, my groceries. It's like, okay, these guys are supplying that. So we, we trust them to do that. They're loyal, trustworthy, hardworking people. Now, all of us, we all have a place in God's kingdom. God's put gifts in us. He's got a calling for us. He's got a place for us to occupy and to be called into his purposes and to shine his light. Like God's got a place for all of us. We have to notice something about the wisdom of Jesus and how he builds his kingdom and how he structures things. That we have to, this is the big principle we, we take away from this moment is that design has to be paired with task. Design has to be paired with task. We're all called to do something, 
that doesn't mean that any of us can do absolutely everything. That we all have different temperaments and different abilities, different experiences. And this, is, this, this message, this, this principle flies in the face of our day and age in a culture that says you can become anything or you're just like everybody else. Or, I mean, we've got preposterous ideas in our culture and, and day and age about identity and who we are. Not realizing that God has beautifully and masterfully made us all so different. And we shouldn't compare ourselves to each other. We shouldn't say, well, why has that person got a little more than it seems I have? Or how come they have a little bit more, their gifting seems greater, or their recognition seems greater, or they get more opportunities? Why does it seem that way? That's the wrong way to go about it. You have to say, how has God designed me, and what's the kind of task I can fulfill through the design that I have received? You match design to task. This is the, the powerful... And so at, at this stage, they don't know they're going to become apostles. They don't know he's going to send them into different regions to, to go around the world. They don't know any of that at this point. That comes later on. At this point, the call is become a disciple. Just become a follower. All right? And that's the call that goes to all of us. Just take the first step. Become a disciple. You don't know the end road. You don't know what God's going to do. You don't know the journey. Just take the first step. You're a follower. That's what it means to be a follower. It's complete trust. I don't know the path. I don't know where it's going to lead. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know where it's going to end up. I might get sent somewhere. I might, God might call me to do all kinds of different things. But I'm, I'm initially a disciple. And Jesus goes and calls these young men, follow me, follow me. This was unlike any other rabbi of the time. Jesus has this habit of flipping customs around. And it really annoyed people. Because, you know, religiously people love their customs. And so Jesus flips his custom around, around, and what would normally happen is students would seek out rabbis, and they'd say, oh, this rabbi teaches this particular thing, so I'm going to go and learn about that way of viewing the Torah, or I'm going to go and, you know, that was the, the approach. The rabbi didn't go and get the students. So Jesus is, is switching this up on them, and what's interesting is, yeah, for somebody, a Jew at this time, their highest focus in terms of learning and study and following a rabbi, whatever it may be, was that were devoted to the Torah, the, the first five books, the, the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. That, that was their devotion. The devotion was to the Torah. You learn the Torah. And Jesus has a different message for them. Instead of saying, you know, come and sit under my teaching, he says, come and follow me. What's fascinating is even in the Old Testament, the cause for followership are actually not, it's at, the idea of following God is actually a little bit absent. It's much more follow the ways of God, follow the law of God. That's typically the message that comes through in the, old, in the First Testament. The only person that, even the religious leaders and, and the spiritual leaders of the Old Testament, even they didn't really say, come and follow me. The only person that kind of does it is Elijah. So, so Jesus, out of the ordinary, he's saying, come and follow me. And there's no miracle to prove this to them. He doesn't perform some sign to say, I'll show you why you should do this. I'll show you why I'm the, you should follow a person. Have, have, have a relationship with a person, not just a law, not just a standard. Yes, the law and the standard is still good and necessary, will never, be, will never pass away. But this is a higher calling. It's, it's a calling to a relationship, a deeper, you know, more intimate, revealed relationship to us. 
There's no, there's no miracle to, to, to prove it to them, to them to say, oh, yeah, okay, that must be it. There's, there's no quote, quoting the Old Testament and Jesus saying, let me show you these verses from Moses here, therefore this, doesn't do that. The call to follow Jesus rests only in the fact that Jesus said it. Only. There's no debate. There's no list of references. Jesus is like, you know, I've done some work experience. And uh, if you call these people, they can attest for my character, my reputation. None of that happens. Um, there's no persuasion. Jesus doesn't have a catchy phrase for them uh, with a cool T-shirt, you know. Uh, n- none of that. Um, <laughs> there's, th- there's no trial period. Like, you know, try for 90 days. See if you, if you, if you, if you like what I have to say. Do. You know, th- uh, there's no 401K. There's, th- there's no... Plant future financial planning in this. Like, hey, I'm going to give you some assurances of your future finances. There's none of this. Jesus, for these guys, I mean, can you imagine it? The Torah, it was the law. You're supposed to follow the law. And Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to follow me. And what he's basically saying, they couldn't put it together. What he's basically saying is he is the law. He is the word in flesh, so he's the originator. So all the, all the words that they were following before, well, they came from this person. So just follow, the person's with you now, so just follow the person. These fishermen, they, they didn't have, they couldn't sort all that out. They weren't, you know, educated like the, 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 rap, the, the, uh, the other leaders were and Pharisees were. They weren't educated in that way, but they sensed something in their heart. They couldn't figure it all out, but they, something deep down told them, this is right. This is, this is, this is, this is right. I, I need to go with this guy. He is the words. He's got the words. And so they immediately, these, these, these disciples, these, there's four disciples initially that are called in this account here, they, they drop their nets. And we always see this immediacy here uh, that Mark loves to put into everything that was happening immediately. It's in a rush. And uh, I, think, I think that, well, first of all, this is the fact that they respond instantly, big win for Jesus, Right? That's a big validation that like, something that Jesus is doing is resonating in people's hearts. So it's a big, big thumbs up for like, yeah, Jesus, this is good. This is going well for you so far. You called them and they said yes. Uh, it's good for the disciples. Um, you know, this is going to change their life. That, you know, it's going to be amazing for them. The other person it's good for that's never mentioned in these passages, the, net, the nets being abandoned, is Nemo. <laughs> it's really good for Nemo. Thank you. The, the immediacy of, of Mark's gospel, I think he's trying to, ta- trying to show us something about what it was like to be with Jesus and, and the power and the authority that Jesus had. You know, Jesus calls these guys, they drop their nets, and they, they leave their lives behind, and they give, themselves to, they give themselves to Jesus. He's trying to tell us the authority that Jesus has, it's, not, it's more than just... He can overcome Satan. He was in the wilderness. He overcame the temptation. He overcame temptation. He's got power and authority to overcome Satan and temptation to sin. Uh, he's got power and authority to, to preach a gospel of repentance. He's got that power. Uh, but it's more than just that. Jesus has the power to call people out of the world and into his mission. I mean, that's a level of authority probably none of us have ever seen in, in a person. I mean, we've probably met people with, with, with more amounts of authority 
if you've ever met somebody you know, that you've respected from a distance or somebody you always thought highly of and you're suddenly in, in a room with them or you see them somewhere and you know that feeling you get when you're like, oh my gosh, like it's that person. Like people sometimes stand up because it's like it's that person. You're starting to get like 1% of probably what it was like for Jesus to say, you've got to follow me. Jesus has this power to reach into our lives. And so when Jesus comes into our lives and he comes into my life and he comes into your life and he, he says, you've you got to follow me. You've got to trust me. You've got to obey me. You've got you to do my works. You're going to come with me. The only response is to drop everything. Just drop everything and say, yeah, that's it. This is it. This is the mission. This is the calling. Okay, Jesus, what is it? What are you? All former allegiances, all former comforts, they're all up for grabs. It tells us that John, that Zebedee and, or the, the, you know, John and James, James and John, the, the sons of Zebedee, I'll get it right here in a second. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they leave their father, who's with his hired servants as well. They leave him in the boat and they go and follow Jesus. The creator of the universe is speaking and deep down they know this is, this is right. This is what I need to do. There's a, and Jesus doesn't, you know, doesn't give him a Bible study test, doesn't give him a quiz or, or a questionnaire. You know, how good is your theology? Doesn't do that. I mean, that, that'll come. They'll figure out stuff. They'll learn. But he doesn't do that. What they need to learn can only be learned by being with Jesus. It can only be learned by being with Jesus. You don't get to know Jesus apart from following him. You don't get to know Jesus apart from following him. So what, what we can't do is we can't say, well, I'll begin to trust God more and obey him more as I learn more about him or as I figure more things out, then I'll do the things he's calling me to do. That's never how it works. The way it works is he says, this is what faith is. Faith is I, I don't know the answers. I don't have it all figured out, but deep down I sense in my heart this particular voice is the voice that called me into my very being. And when that voice speaks, I know I need to do it. I know it's the voice of God. And so we can't know Jesus apart from being with Jesus and doing the things of Jesus. So we can't be those who say, well, I'll, I'll just get more comfortable with um, going deeper in my Christian faith or stretching myself more. As I just, you know, as I learn, as I, I, I learn more about it or it becomes clearer to me. It never works that way. You basically have to take that step of faith and say, I'm just going to go with Jesus and figure it out along the way. That's the way it always works. You just go with Jesus and you find out along the way what he's up to. You find out along the way what he's up to, what he's doing. And so if we're not willing to submit our will to the will of God and to have that level of faith to say, I'm just going to follow Jesus. How can we claim that we know Jesus? We can't claim that we truly know Jesus. We might know some things about him, but do we know him? Are we friends with him? If it's, because otherwise it's not really followership, is it? Otherwise it's not, it's not true followership. It's our allegiance is still to the comforts we have and the control that we want, and the, things that, the way things we, sh we think they should work. And so to follow Jesus, to be called into this thing, is to become 
It's to, it's to reach out to people. It's to become a fisher of men. Like Jesus said, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. This is a phrase that Jesus is borrowing from the Old Testament. So we see, again, more continuity between the First Testament and the Second Testament. We see it all goes together. It's one giant story, one giant book, one giant promise and work of God. He's borrowing from um, Jeremiah. I think it's Jeremiah 16. This is a phrase that the prophet Jeremiah uses about being fishers of men. And so Jesus is borrowing from that concept and saying, that's what I'm going to do in you. And when he says, I'm going to make you become fishers of men, it's the way it's described in the, the Greek, the emphasis is that it's actually an identity that you're taking on. It's not just something you do. It's not just like, oh, I like to fish. It's like my whole occupation has changed. Because that's what people, you know, last names, right, used to be based on people's family occupation, right? We actually used to have a guy in our church, Andrew Fisher. I wonder if he was, you know, they, they were into fish probably. They doing stuff, stuff with fish, I don't know. He doesn't do anything with fish anymore. You know, the world's changed. But you get the idea that this is, this is you're, you're named after. This is an identity that you take on. And so for all of us who follow Jesus, we've got to understand something Jesus is calling us to focus less and less on catching things in the world. It's so easy to be distracted by the world, to, be, to, to worry about the world, to have the cares of the world take up our time and our, to occupy our minds. And we, we're trying to catch the things of the world all the time. I'm fishing for the things in the world. That's what I care about. That's what my focus is. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 when you follow me, it moves from that to now you're catching people. You're fishers of people, fishers of men. This is now an identity. I'm, I'm causing you to become this. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus just caught some men. He just went and got them, called them out. And he said, I'm going to show you how to do this exact thing. I'm going to call you to reach people. So we, we, we're here to share the grace of Jesus with people. And it, it starts by actually joining a fellowship. Do you notice that? That it's not just, Jesus doesn't just call them and send them out. Cause them to be with him and to be t- together with him. It's very Lord of the Rings, actually. It starts off, it's like, you've got to form a fellowship at the beginning. It's, it's, a, it's a team sport. You, 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 need, you need backup. You, you, you need teammates. We need each other to do this, of course. And so Jesus came to start his church. This is the fellowship of believers. We're, we're called out and, and we're called into this family and then this family together is on a mission where, uh, you know, when we tend, tend to think of fishing, we tend to think of, you know, in our day and age, it's like fishing with rods and poles, right? It's like individual. Obviously, for them, it was fishing with nets. It takes many people to fish with a net. You're doing it. It's a, it's a group activity that you do together. We're, we're, we're catching people. We're doing the ministry and the mission of Jesus, catching people together. It was these men, of course, all, all disciples are fishers of men, but it was these men that Jesus, the salt of the earth, blue-collar, hard-working, loyal men, men of grit, who he would call to also lay down their lives. Jesus laying down his life was a foreshadowing of even Peter laying down his life. Lay down your life for Jesus. What happened with David Wilkerson, our big city friend? It seemed that the compassion and the interest that he'd been pouring in to these gangs and trying to reach, in particular, uh, Nicky Cruz, who was the, the main leader, one of the most feared gang leaders of the time. 
it seemed that it was starting to make a dent. Now, it was subtle at the beginning, but, but a shift was happening. David Wilkerson could see a shift was happening. You can take that down, actually. Let's not show that picture because I want to relate it to Jesus. Actually, make the note for that in the future. Only show the picture at the beginning. All right, thank you. It was slow. David, uh, excuse me, Nikki Cruz started attending David Wilkerson's meetings. He started regularly attending, started showing up. It began with hostility. Then it moved over time, it moved to curiosity. And then ultimately, he found faith in Jesus. One of the most feared gang leaders in New York City back in the day gave his life to Christ. He repented of his sins and his violent life. And his salvation reverberated, not just around that city, but around the world. And David Wilkerson's example to us, it illustrates, he took this on. He became a fisher of men. It underscores the cost involved. It underscores the surrender that we have to say, I have to prioritize God's calling, God's kingdom, even above all my earthly allegiances, even to my own relatives, my own family. That's one of the strongest, I mean, there's lots of strong pulls on our lives, money, career, recognition, any kind of success. Those family connections can be really strong too. Of course, nobody abandons a marriage. Jesus calls us to marriage. That's the greatest, one of the, other than our covenant with God, that's the greatest covenant that we have. We, if you have young kids, of course, you're committed to your kids. But outside of that, once your children are of a certain age or whatever it might be, all bets are off. The powers that want to put expectations on me or my own, the, the urging of my own flesh to be led by the things in the world or the things that surround me, for me to be a true follower of Jesus, I have to be like David Wilkerson. I have to be like these disciples. I have to be like James and John. I have to say, Jesus, I'll do what you tell me to do. What you tell me to do. The rewards for giving up the things that the world says we should have or the things that our hearts desire, laying down those things, the rewards are enormous. Through David Wilkerson's ministry, so many people came to Christ. And Nikki Cruz's testimony transformed a generation of people. Not only did it transform other people, but David Wilkerson himself was, he couldn't have anticipated the change it would have done in him. The, the person that he became through trusting God and through persevering with the calling in spite of all the obstacles and all the setbacks and all the challenges and all the trials. It reminds us, doesn't it, that following Jesus, there's going to be rejection, there's going to be challenge, there's going to be trial. We might lose our lives. We're going to be faced with danger. Of course, all those things happen, but we've got to understand the results of trusting and following Jesus yield a harvest more satisfying and better than anything the world can offer us. These disciples, the effort that they were called into, they weren't called into pouring themselves out because they had initially shown 
some kind of righteousness. As we know, their character was not that great. They needed a lot of help. Their calling, being called in, being chosen by Jesus, is based on God's initiative, based on the adoption of God. And this is one of the most profound things to understand about being a Christian is this. You know, biological children, when parents decide we're going to start a family, they love the idea of having children. They want to have children. And God blesses people with children. But you don't know what child you're going to get. You don't know what they're going to be like, what they're going to look like, what they're going to sound like. You don't choose how they're going to come out. You choose that you want a child. Not everyone does. Sometimes that happens by accident too, of course. But the power of adoption, that's what it means to be a Christian, is it means we've been adopted. The power of adoption, in one sense, is a greater level of love, if you could imagine that, and that a, a future parent goes and sees a child that's already been born, already exists, and says, I want that one. I'm going to choose that one and bring them into my family. And that's what God has done with you and with me. We've been chosen, we've been adopted, brought in, This, this calling, this gospel of grace, the only response to it is to repent. Is to recognize I'm not worthy of it. I didn't earn it. It's not by my initiative, but by his initiative. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop my nets. I'm going to drop all other allegiances. Everything else, God, it, I trust you. I trust it to you. When the creator of the universe, when he speaks... When he says, come and follow me, when he says, come and obey me, there's power in the words themselves. And we respond. We need to worship Jesus today. We need to sing to him. We need to, we need to humble our hearts before him. There's lots of reasons that we resist his call. And we need to repent of those things, turn away from those things, and really trust the call of Jesus on our lives.